Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio. So use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. Call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great weekend. I just got back into town last night. 
uh, flew in from Reno. We were skiing at North Star in California by Lake Tahoe. It was my first time ever skiing in that Lake Tahoe area. It was a lot of fun, a lot of really good runs. I feel like I got a lot better. Uh, skiing is like my second favorite thing to do in the world behind basketball, so I always enjoy getting out of town on those trips. I leave again on Friday to go up to Breckenridge uh, for my second to last trip of the year. We have a special trip in April for my wife's 30th birthday. We're going to be going up to Canada, uh, but doing a lot of skiing this season. Like I said, one of my favorite things to do. Today, we are going to keep it really simple, talking Lakers-Celtics in that wild game last night, and then Joel Embiid delivering a smackdown to Nikola Jokic. A lot to get into on both of those fronts. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And then last but not least, if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And lastly, you guys have heard me talk about Game Time, the fastest growing ticketing app in the United States. If you're looking to get out to any NBA game or an NHL game or an NFL game or a comedy show or anything, Game Time has amazing last minute deals to all of those. My wife and I are going on Thursday night to see Oregon play at Arizona in McHale Center. Very, very much excited for that. Uh, when we went through the process, the Game Time app was super easy to use. I knew exactly where we were going to be sitting. I could even like move the phone around and kind of look around the arena. It's super easy to use and user-friendly. I want you guys to check that out. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the Game Time app, enter your email, and redeem code HOOPS. For $20 off your first purchase, terms apply. Again, enter your email and code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Okay, so what a great game between the Lakers and the Celtics last night in intensity, especially as the crowd was kind of working off of each other where the Laker fans were getting loud and then the Celtics fans were trying to match that. There was a special intensity in that game, I was watching it in the Salt Lake City Airport while we were preparing uh, on a layover. Uh, it was still a little bit of a funky game. Like Anthony Davis and Rui Hachimura were still coming off the bench. AD is still nowhere near what he was before his injury. Like he played 34 minutes and only managed 16 points and 10 rebounds, although I thought he was very good defensively. And then Marcus Smart wasn't playing for the Celtics either. So it's just kind of like a weird game in a lot of different ways. Um, the Lakers really controlled it led throughout. I thought they deserved to win. And then they got burned by three things down the stretch. Once again, Darvin Ham refusing to foul when up three on the final possession. Now, again, I understand as a basketball mind how you might feel like I trust my defense to get a stop here. But all of the data clearly suggests that you have a better chance to win significantly if you foul up three on the final possession, then if you play it out defensively. And it'd be one thing if it was kind of on the fence and it was a matter of ideology, I'd understand. But when the data that is that clear about fouling when you're up three, I think that refusing to take that strategy is leaving opportunity on the table. They end up getting burned by a offensive rebound by Jalen Brown and then Patrick Beverly kind of hacks him over the top of the head. Game is tied. Um, then at the end of the game, the, the, there was a really bad missed call on LeBron. You guys have all seen it. It's been the biggest story in the league over the last 24 hours. LeBron gets all the way to the rim, left hand at the rim, gets hacked on the forearm. He missed it. It was an atrocious missed call. I don't know what else to say. I mean, the refs 
that were in that moment should be ashamed. There was a ref on the baseline that had a clear view of the call. But at the end of the day, that's why a lot of guys settle for jump shots at the end of games. I've been saying this on the show for a long time. Everyone thinks it's so easy. Like, hey, why did you settle? Put your head down. Try to go to the rim. There is a distinct reason why players take a lot of pull-up jump shots at the end of games. One, it's a lot harder to send help and double team when you're working off with the live dribble from the perimeter than it is when you're driving to the basket. And two, when you drive to the basket, you put the outcome in the ref's hands. It even goes further than getting a shot off. It's like kind of like that Russell Westbrook play on Joel Embiid. He's getting fouled on his way to the rim, and he lost control of the basketball. So you might not even get a shot off, let alone get to the rim and have a chance to finish where you might get fouled there as well. When you drive to the basket, you put the outcome in the hands of the refs, and the refs, in many cases, don't want to be involved with changing the outcome of the game. The reason why so many calls get uncalled on the final possession at the rim is they'd rather let the basketball players dictate the terms of the game, which I get. Now, there should be a line. Like, if you're getting clearly hacked right in front of the ref on a layup, then yeah, you should blow the whistle, but you got to understand human nature. Yes, it makes sense. Hey, if we drive to the basket, I might be able to get a drive and kick opportunity. I might be able to get a higher percentage shot at the rim. But we know through human nature that you're much less likely to get a call, which means you have to score or pass through physicality Illegal physicality. That's not going to get called. So that's why it's like, hey, why don't I take this pull-up jump shot? Or why don't I go over this ball screen and shoot this three? Or take this turnaround fadeaway out of the post? The reason why is in that situation, the outcome's in my hands. The ref can't take it away from me. The defense is going to have a hard time even doubling. My best player is going to get a shot that at least he's going to make or miss and will live on that outcome. That's why a lot of guys do that. So I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong answer, but it's a lot easier for us Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking from the couch to be like, oh, he should have driven or, oh, he should have taken a jump shot when really at the end of games, there's no good option. You can drive and get fouled and it probably won't get called or you can take a lower percentage fadeaway. In both cases, it's tough, which by the way is exactly why throughout NBA history in last second possessions, everyone's field goal percentage tanks. <laughs> like, Everybody does poorly in those situations. You might have outlier seasons where one guy shoots really well for a year, but all league-wide percentages go down in those situations because of that specific conundrum that I just broke down for you. And then lastly, the third big mistake for the Lakers in overtime, Darvin Ham inexplicably and inexcusably went back to Russell Westbrook despite the mountain of evidence both in data and visual evidence on tape that Russ cannot close. Darvin went back to him. It predictably messed up LA's offense. They managed just seven points in OT, and they lost. On the Celtics side of things, Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon were both magnificent. Jason Tatum, once again, kind of had an uneven night on a big stage. He did get over 30 points, but he was just 8 for 25 from the field. He had more turnovers than assists. There was that weird moment. I mean, that, that last play with LeBron was really weird because Tatum clearly hacks him on the left arm. Like, the... One of the worst missed calls at the end of a basketball game I've ever seen. And he turns and like runs up the floor holding one finger up like he just saved the day, which was bizarre behavior. Now, he did, technically, but
but he saved the, the day by doing something that should have actually cost him the game. So it was just kind of another weird, uneven night from Tatum. But every single time that has happened over the last couple of years, Jalen Brown has been the guy who's been aggressive, who's been confident, who stepped up and made those big plays. Um, th- that's been a consistent theme over the last couple of years. Made all the plays down the stretch to send it to OT, including the offensive rebound, put back, and then in OT, just bullying his way to the rim, hitting pull-up jump shots. He's their late-game assassin in a lot of different ways. And it's not a, ma- a matter of skill, because I think Jalen Br- uh, Jason Tatum is a better player than J- uh, Jalen Brown. But Jason Tatum has a little bit more of a passive persona and is less confident in those situations. And Jalen Brown is completely laser-focused on on looking for his own shot and and using his physical tools to get higher quality attempts at the rim. He does everything right in those late game situations that you want from Jason Tatum. And then Malcolm Brogdon. I've been from the minute they made the trade that last summer, I said it was a home run trade. It specifically addressed one of their biggest weaknesses and you saw again last night what happens when you put the basketball in the hands of a very smart player who is very skilled, who's going to make good decisions at the end of games. He had 11 points and two assists in the fourth quarter and overtime. Massive pull up three and pick and roll towards the end of regulation where the, I can't remember whether, whether it was Dennis or Pat, but one of the guards goes underneath the screen. He just steps back and hits a three really nice left-handed finish in traffic off the glass in OT to put the Celtics up by six. Um, Malcolm Brogdon is just playing. I, I said to you guys uh, like a week or two ago that in smaller doses, because his minutes have been somewhat limited, he's been giving you superstar level production. Like, on a per 36-minute basis, he's doing what superstars do with shot making and being the offensive engine and, and making those decisions and keeping their offense moving. So, I, I mean, I, I, I tip of the cap to the Celtics for making that aggressive move this offseason, not being complacent when you were that close to an NBA championship because he makes them so much better. Darvin Ham and the refs, obviously, with that missed call, left a little bit of a crack in the door on a night when the Lakers were a better basketball team. And Malcolm Brogdon and Jalen Brown just smashed that door open and got the win. I want to talk about Russ in overtime for a minute because at four minutes left in OT, even though he had played poorly all game, and even though he really has been playing poorly for most of the last two weeks, Darvin Ham went back to Russ. And it was was funny, I was watching it uh, in the uh, the airport in Salt Lake City, and I remember literally thinking in the moment, I'm like, I can see what his reasoning was. Like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were starting to give Dennis Schroeder and Patrick Beverly some issues with their size because they're bigger. I think he wanted to have a larger player out there that could do some more individual defense stuff on Tatum and Brown. And for the record, that was like the one thing he did pretty well in that crunch time period was, you know, I think he forced two turnovers. He stripped Jason Tatum clean once. He's a good isolation defender. That's a fact about Russ. But there's all the bad stuff that comes with it. And he's in, on the offensive end. We know three things about Russ in crutch time situations. They're going to put a center on him. So if he's off the ball, he's going to have to take catch and shoot threes, which he won't be able to make. And if he's on the ball, the center is going to back off and try to bait him into driving into him at the basket where he's going to struggle to finish over that size and physicality. And then third, decision-making. Russ is not a good late-game decision-maker. And all three of those things were on display down the stretch of this game. But what's funny is... I remember sitting there in the Salt Lake City airport thinking, this is Darwin playing roulette. Because Russ is a very much a roulette type of player. He's a good playmaker and he's a bad playmaker. And if you play the game 
in a large sample size, there's going to be more good than bad, especially if he plays a lot in the middle portions of the game, which has been the story of the season. There's been more good Russ than bad Russ, but most of that good is taking place in the middle portions of games. At the end of games, it's a, a completely different dynamic. But if when you play roulette, sometimes you pick red three times in a row, and sometimes it lands on red three times in a row. And it's funny because that's how it started, because uh, Russ checks into the game, and LeBron misses a driving layup, and Russ just comes flying in and gets an offensive rebound put back and gets fouled. And you're like, whoa, there you go. Big-time play from Russ. Misses the free throw, but a couple possessions later, Jason Tatum picks on Russ on a switch, and Russ just strips Jason Tatum clean. Anthony Davis gets the ball, pushes it ahead to Russ. Russ goes the length of the floor and draws a foul on Malcolm Brogdon, goes to the line and makes both free throws. Boom, we're making plays. Three good plays in a row from Russ. That's hitting red three times in a row. But what happens when you're playing roulette and you hit red three times in a row and you pick red on the fourth one? Sometimes it goes back to black. And then sometimes it goes back to black again. And now all of a sudden you're in a worse position than you were when you started. Boston starts guarding Russ with Luke Cornett. A center and a strategy we've seen all season beat the Lakers. LeBron drives to the basket. Luke Cornett is ignoring Russ in the left corner. LeBron makes the kickout pass to Russ in the left corner. He misses the three. If that's Rui Hachimura, the player who should have been in the game in that point, he's a 42% corner three-point shooter. One of the better corner three-point shooters in the league. And he has a much better chance of making that shot. Russell Westbrook is a 28% corner three-point shooter. So Boston is loving that shot. Because even if, even if he manages to make it, he'll probably take two or three more of them and miss them. And Russ predictably missed that shot. Very next possession. Russ catches in the right corner. This time Al Horford's guarding him. Al Horford concedes the shot to Russ. But Russ doesn't take it. Why? Because he's a 28% three-point shooter on wide open attempts. Again, that's the big uh, differentiator. It's not 28% on Boyan Bogdanovich's shot profile. It's 28% on standstill, completely unguarded threes. Like many of you watching this show probably hit wide open threes at a higher percentage than Russell Westbrook. That's the concern. So he looks at Al Horford and doesn't shoot it. Instead of working it around to LeBron, who's on one all game long, or Anthony Davis, who's not having a great game but is a better player than Russ... What does Russ do? He does exactly what the other team wants him to do. Attempts to bully a center to the basket. And Al funnels him behind the backboard and he ends up throwing it up off the bottom of the rim. Meanwhile, LeBron is relocating to the right corner and is wide open asking for the basketball. That's why teams guard Russ with centers. They can give space, and when he tries to bully their way to the rim, or his way to the rim, they can swallow everything up around the rim because they are bigger and stronger than him. I want to be clear. Russ has played well enough for long stretches this season to be a net positive. I said that earlier. I'm going to say it again because I don't want to be slanderous here. But one of the biggest reasons that I remain a big advocate for trading Russ at the deadline is Darvin Ham has a blind spot for him. He does not see those problems in crunch time. And we wondered earlier, it was like, okay, Russ is playing a lot in crunch time because of injuries. 
Well, now everyone's healthy. He had Lonnie Walker as an option. He had Rui Hachimura as an option. He had Troy Brown Jr. as an option. All three much better options than Russell Westbrook in the crunch time group, and he went with Russ anyway. This season, when Russ plays in crunch time, the Lakers are 8-13. This season, when Russ does not play in crunch time, the Lakers are 4-0. We have a mountain of data, both in the numbers, but also in the visual evidence that's on film of what happens when he's in crunch time, and Darvin does not see it. And so even in the beautiful you know, Lakers fan dream scenario where AD gets back to MVP form and they make a trade for a shooter at the deadline and everything's clicking and you're in the second round of the playoffs and it's game five and it's two to two and it's 105-105 in OT, Darvin will play Russ again. And it might cost them the series. The only way to stop that is to get him off the roster. It is now incumbent on Rob Palinka to save Darvin Ham from himself. I don't believe they will. And I believe that this will continue to be an issue throughout the remainder of the season, but I think that the actual solution itself is pretty simple. Look, it's a heartbreaking loss for the Lakers, and heartbreak is heartbreak. It happens to every team. It's a natural part of the 82-game season. You're going to lose games because of bad calls. You're going to lose games because of wild shot-making from a random opponent. You're going to lose games because you have, for a half dozen different reasons over the course of an 82-game season. But if you're the Celtics and you're 36-15, and 15, say LeBron makes that left-handed layup at the buzzer, and the Lakers win. Lakers feeling great, but let's focus on Boston. They're looking at that, and they're 35 and 16. And they're like, Ugh, man, that sucks. We lost LeBron on a final possession. He beat us. Damn it. In a rivalry game, national television, pff, that sucks. Okay, but if we turn around and we win on Monday, now we're 36 and 16. We still have the best record in the league, and who cares? But Rob Palinka and Jeannie Buss sent the Lakers out undermanned to start the season at key positions. And kept Russ on the roster despite the clunky fit. And so they're 23 and 27 now. So it's a lot harder for them to cope with this sort of thing. Because they desperately need wins. And look, I I understand a lot of Lakers fans are focusing on the refs. And I understand. I think they're being a little dramatic. I can only think of two games in particular where I thought they were flat out robbed. Some of the other games, it was just missed calls that could have gone either way. And even in that situation, it doesn't guarantee the outcome of the game. The two games I look at are last night because LeBron got fouled as the buzzer was sounding on a layup and should have gone to the line to win the game. And I don't care how bad you are at free throw shooting, he's going to make one of two. And then the Mavericks game, when he did the exact same thing on Christian Wood, I think it was either at the end of OT or at the end of regulation, drives baseline, buzzer's about to sound, he's at the rim, and Christian Wood just hacks the hell out of him on his arm. Should have gone to the line, should have made them. That's two games, guys. That's two games out of 82. That should not dictate your season. You should just be like, oh crap, I can't believe it happened to us twice. But who cares, because we're a good basketball team, And we can weather that. But the Lakers have done so much additional damage to themselves that that hurts even worse. Again, 4-0 when you close the games without Russ. Uh, Should have been 5-0 if LeBron gets the call that he wanted because Russ was out of the game for crunch time in that part. And 8-13 when they close with Russ. There's data there. You're ignoring data. That's self-sabotage. You can't blame the refs for that. 
That's self-sabotage. You lost a half dozen games this year just because you simply did not have forwards on the floor. And you continually gave up offensive rebounds to bigger, taller players, and you lost. That's not on the refs. That's on Rob Palinka. So, like, I, I don't like – that's why I don't like blaming refs when we talk about this kind of stuff. You can point it out. Yeah, missed call. You're right. God, yeah, the, the Lakers should have won. LeBron got robbed. The Lakers got robbed. But that's a natural part of the game of basketball, especially in a larger sample size, and you should be able to weather that. And if you can't, you probably have a lot bigger problems than getting calls at the end of games. On a glass half full level for the Lakers, the Lakers are good. I would imagine that there are even skeptics out there who, are, who have been watching these videos, who have been thinking I was ridiculous all year, who are starting to acknowledge that the Lakers are good. They're in every single game, regardless of who they're playing. Even with all of the disaster in all of the tricked off games, they are still 21 and 17 since their 2 and 10 start, and they just added Anthony Davis back to the lineup and a really good lottery pick forward. So they're good, but they've got to get out of their own way. They need to get rid of Russ to save Darvin Ham from himself. I still think they need that one more shooter to really tie things together offensively. And here's the other glass half full thing AD was really good last night defensively. And he grabs some key contested rebounds, but AD is not even close to back to form. He's going to continue to get better and better over the next few weeks, so there's a lot to get excited about there. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, let's talk Denver-Philly. I watched this game in Reno. Um, you know what's kind of funny about this game is through three and a half quarters, it was kind of the perfect description of why Jokic is the better player, right? Like, 
He was controlling the game the way he usually does. He was only shooting when it was in the flow of the offense, just creating advantages all game long and being that engine that makes everything work. Nothing special was happening, but the box score numbers were there and the Nuggets were up. Kind of textbook Denver Nuggets. But then Joel Embiid happened. And in the same way that the first three and a half quarters were evidence of the way that Jokic is better, that last half quarter was evidence of why Embiid is better. Just an onslaught of high-level pull-up jump shooting, most of which was in Nikola Jokic's face, making him look silly. Joel demonstrated in that stretch all the things that he can do that Jokic can't do. And he looked helpless while Joel snatched the game away from him. So what I want to do here is I want to come at this uh, game from the angle of the who's better and beat or Jokic debate because I think it's super interesting. First of all, it's super subjective. Everybody's entrenched. Everybody's on their side. And I'm not even going to change anybody's mind, obviously. But I do want to take a look at it from that angle because I think it's an interesting example of different archetypes of players and the way we have to evaluate them. So even if we even just looking at yesterday's game, it's easy to be like, Embiid whooped Jokic's ass, therefore he is better. And for the record, that's what happened yesterday. Jokic, or Embiid whooped Jokic's ass. That's what happened yesterday. But last year, Jokic went into Philly. Same type of game, didn't do anything extraordinary. Box score wasn't anything magnificent, but the Nuggets got better shots all game long and they won. And I remember in that particular game, Jokic was killing them in transition with his transition passing. But like, again, like, if you look at one specific game, it's just going to be about what ha- what ended up happening. Jokic played Jokic style last year. They won. This year, Embiid made all his pull-up jump shots. They won. You see the difference between their two archetypes. And that's why I want to start here. So, yes, they are both centers. But they are incredibly different. Jokic is an advantage creator that can score. Joel Embiid is an assassin scorer. Like, he is a top-tier dominant scorer. That's what he does better than most of the players in the league. That's not what Jokic does better than most of the players in the league. He is an offensive engine. Creates advantages, scores within the flow of the offense. Very different. Like, Jokic can score. Embiid does that for a living. Embiid's also a better defensive player. But at the same time, he has some of the same limitations that most centers do. He struggles in transition. He struggles in space. He needs to be kept around the rim for him to have the same amount of defensive value as some of the better defenders in the league. So what does that mean? As soon as we start comparing box score numbers with these guys, we've lost the plot. And we can't make any progress here. Because they're just completely different. They impact the game in different ways. They approach the game offensively in different ways. Defensively, they have different levels of impact. So I, I just it, the box score just doesn't serve any purpose. You have to look at the way that they're controlling the outcome of the game on the ultimate scoreboard. Like, what does a Jokic great game look like? Like what you saw. Barely taking any shots. Like, I'll give you some examples of the difference in their offensive approach. Uh, Nikola Jokic has run 54 ISOs this year. Joel Embiid has run 301 ISOs this year. It's a pretty different offensive approach. Joel Embiid has posted up 253 times and only passed out of it 96 times. Jokic has posted up 403 times, but he's passed out of it 198 times. He's posting to pass every bit as much as he's posting to shoot. As opposed to Embiid, he's posting to shoot three times as much as he's posting to pass. 
you can see the difference. But like when you look at Embiid's great games, they look exactly like it looked like at the end of the game yesterday. Embiid's great games are shot making and pull-up jump shot after pull-up jump shot. And I just throw you the ball at the free throw line and there's nothing I can do to stop you. That's what a Yoke, or an Embiid good game looks like. The Jokic good game is much more subtle. It's much more possession-by-possession possession impact. And so you're going to either be the guy that sees all that stuff and targets that or sees all the shot making and gets wowed by it and allows that to sway your opinion. That's why this is such a subjective debate. My take on it, I've always thought that scores are better stealing raisers and offensive engines are better floor raisers. So for instance, I think LeBron's a much better player than Kevin Durant all time. And if I needed a player for a playoff series tomorrow, I'd take LeBron in terms of their like equal primes, right? Like both take both of them at age 33, for instance. But on a night where Katie's jumper is really going, like where he's just on fire with this pull-up jump shot, LeBron's never going to beat him in that game. Because LeBron's impact is more of a possession-by-possession, we-get-higher-quality-shots-on-both-ends-of-the-floor type of game. Whereas Kevin Durant, it's like otherworldly pull-up jump shooting, and some nights he goes 10-for-13 on pull-up jump shots, and the next night he might go 4-for-13 on pull-up jump shots. Right? And then in the aggregate, it ends up being around 50% on pull-up jump shots. But the night-in, night-out, possession-by-possession impact is different. And what you saw last night is the Embiid-Jokic version of that. I had, coming into the season, Jokic at 7 and Embiid at 8. That means I viewed them as very close. But the reason why I gave Jokic the edge is I believe he has more possession-by-possession impact, game-in and game-out, over an 82-game season and order a, over a playoff run. But make no mistake, if Joel Embiid is going to make pull-up jump shots the way he did last night and do it through four rounds of the playoffs, he's absolutely better than Jokic. He might be the best player in the world. That's why I've been saying so consistently that his pull-up jump shot is everything for this team in the postseason. If that shot is going in, that little 15-footer at the elbow off of 17 different dribble combinations, no one's going to be able to guard the guy, and the Sixers are going to win the trophy. That's what's going to happen. But it's not like that every single night. And Joel has a little bit of a uh, reputation for his jump shot in particular falling apart when he gets to the postseason. I said last year he made... Joel Embiid missed two-thirds of his shots outside of the restricted area last year in the playoffs. And that's been a consistent theme throughout his career. So, when his ceiling raising isn't there, his overall winning impact is lower. Whereas with Jokic, even if he's not making his ISO jumpers, he does so many other things offensively on the court to keep his team going that on a night-in, night-out basis, it's more consistent. So, that's why I have... Jokic is slightly better than Embiid, but I'm never going to sway you because they're two completely different players and you either prefer one type or you don't. And you guys know I've been consistent. I've always preferred the playmaker archetype over the scoring archetype. I've been consistent with that since the beginning, whether it's me favoring Luka over players, favoring Jokic over players, favoring LeBron over players. It's always been my, that's just my opinion on it. And I'm just breaking down why I feel that way. But regardless of how you feel about this debate, make no mistake, Embiid busted Nikola Jokic's ass on national television for the world to see last night. And it was, it was a cool moment. I'm happy for Embiid. And make no mistake, like I'm not married to any take 
Yes, I think Jokic is slightly better now, but if Embiid plays like this through the end of the regular season and goes into the postseason and is hitting pull-up jump shots and goes on a deep playoff run where he's in the conference finals or later and Jokic loses in the first round because he's not aggressively looking to score, then that means Embiid's better. You know, I saw a lot of Nuggets fans in particular saying like, man, I need Jokic to shoot more. Why isn't he shooting more? That's not his game. He's not going to go shot for shot with Joel Embiid. If Embiid's hitting those pull-up jumpers, Jokic isn't just going to come down and mix him up off the dribble for a pull-up jumper of his, of his own. That's not his game. And that's why it looked so jarring last night to watch Embiid repeatedly punch Jokic in the face, proverbially with basketball, while Jokic went on the other end and seemingly did nothing. That's just, it's not his style. He can't, he'll never be able to meet Embiid on that ceiling when he's got it going like that. But that's what makes this kind of thing complicated. And if it was easy, we'd all be on the same side and it would be boring to talk about. But it's interesting because it's, it's debate. It's, you know, it's difficult. And there is a lot of personal opinion involved. But Dan, that was a good basketball game. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We will be back tomorrow breaking down today's games. As always, I sincerely appreciate your guys' support. And I will see you then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.